Hello, welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording this episode in June 2022. This episode is all about metaethics, specifically about moral anti-realism. So we'll be thinking about what metaethics is, sorting out various terms such as moral anti-realism, cognitivism, non-cognitivism, and error theory, thinking about Hume and Mackey and A.J. Eyre, perhaps some others, and talking through various motivations and problems for particular anti-realist positions. We'll also see what else we get onto as always. This is Metaethics Part 2. There's also a Metaethics Part 1, where we think about topics in relation to moral realism. Joining me in this episode, we have Paul Moore-Brudger from King Edward School in Birmingham. Hi, Paul. Hi, Simon. Hi, Ben. And we also have Ben Jones from King Edward Sixth College in Stourbridge. Hi, Ben. Hi, yeah. Hello, everyone. Uh, Good to have the two of you back for Metaethics Part 2. We didn't put you off with that gruelling Part 1 then. Good to have... Again, two different King Ed schools represented. I hope King Edward himself is listening in. Who knows? Um, okay, so we're going to talk about metaethics and moral anti-realism today. Um, as I said in the other episode, metaethics appears in all the main A-level curricula and IB. It isn't in Scottish hires, but it might be useful to listen to this pod all the same. Um, there's a lot to sort out with metaethics. Plenty of isms, lots of overlapping material. In this episode and the part one, what we're trying to do is sort out lots of things for you. Uh, we also have a Metaethics short episode or episodes, depending on what I do, uh, for you to listen, which gives you the quicker summary of the whole metaethical terrain. It's probably worth saying all of that, that we spend a bit of time at the start of this episode just recapping uh, metaethics and moral realism, because there's a lot going on, as we know. So, Ben, do you want to give us a quick recap of metaethics and moral realism, uh, and then we can launch into how that links to moral anti-realism. Yeah, sure. The the sort of story so far of where we got to, I guess, is that metaethics is the study of, the investigation of, inquiries into all of the underlying nature of morality. So as we were talking about last week, there's a whole discussion about the nature of moral facts, for example, about whether or not there are such things as moral facts, um, which would also lead to then discussions of whether or not there are such things as moral truths and what forms those would take, uh, whether or not moral knowledge would be possible, how moral language works, and all of these sorts of things. Where we got to last week is we'd looked at the discussion of moral realism, so the idea that there are moral facts in the world, that these are Uh, Things like goodness, for example, is something which is actually in the world and which can be investigated and which can be understood rather than, let's say, it just being people's opinions, people's feelings, whatever it might be. There are actual moral facts which can determine whether or not our moral judgments are true or false. The two sides of that that we ended up looking at were moral naturalism, and that seems to argue that whatever we're talking about in terms of things like moral goodness, moral rightness, moral wrongness, are all dependent upon natural facts. So facts which can be investigated scientifically or empirically or facts which are kind of within the confines of the natural universe or however it is those, we have that discussion about how many different ways you can actually define the idea of a, of a natural fact. So the simplest example of that just being utilitarianism and happiness so when you actually look at it 
when I'm claiming that something is is good, like if I say it was good of you to give that money to charity, what I'm actually doing is saying you giving that money to charity increased the amount of happiness that was in the world. I'm sort of telling you that you've done something good, but all I really mean is you've made people happier. And conversely, for them being wrong, you've made people unhappier. Now, without kind of like dredging everything up that we looked at, it might be then that there are problems that are associated with this. So um, it seems to be the case that actually we seem to be doing more than just referring to natural facts when we're talking about morality. The goodness doesn't seem to be identical with any particular natural fact that we find within the world, which is where G. Moore stepped in. So he offers an account of non-naturalism, which is that goodness is its own simple, unanalyzable property. It's not something which can be broken down into other properties or understood in terms of anything other than itself. It's something which we understand self-evidently and uh, which isn't just a combination of or identical to some other natural property. Um, And we talked about the connections there between that and stuff like mathematics and mathematics Uh, A number, for example, in particular, has principles, self-evident principles. It has its own objects and properties like number. But these are not things which are directly observable within the world. We can can actually um, encounter the world and understand the world in terms of them. But that doesn't mean that we ever encounter a number in the world. We don't bump into the number three. We can't hold seven in our hands or pi or whatever it might be. I mean, apart from an actual pi, but like pi uh, as a, as a mathematical number, you couldn't actually have that. So we started looking at the end there about how maybe G Moore's um, account had started to maybe make a few errors in the way that it was reasoned, but it was kind of tying off at the end there, this move into a much more linguistic way of looking at, at morality, of saying, well, we use language. So even with when I spoke about utilitarianism then, I was saying that when I say that something is good, what I really mean is it increases the amount of happiness. Or, you know, kind of G Moore saying, well, um, does the question, it's uh, it makes people happy, but is it really good? That sort of question stands out to us as meaning a particular thing, or for him kind of standing out as not really being a a meaningful question in some respects. So um, what he's trying to do is then make a shift towards language. And that's kind of where we rounded off that sort of discussion, I think. That's really helpful. Thanks very much, Ben. So could I just jump in? I was just going to say, I think that point about the move towards language is a really interesting one in around the, the way we go about, think about investigating ethics because it's kind of there's a, this interesting methodological point, isn't there, that we go into actually maybe doing what we would call perhaps conceptual analysis. So in order to find out what good is, we actually just go and look at what good might mean. And that's quite a big shift, isn't it? Because when we think about the sort of the tradition of you know, the, the different normative ethical theories that people will have looked at when they've been doing their, their A-level or their IB studies, the big question will have just been that big metaphysical one. Yeah? Is that, you know, what is this good thing? How does it exist? You know, how do good properties exist? Uh, maybe people have studied Plato, looked at his theory of the forms and all that sort of thing, but that, or maybe looked at Kant and talked about the, the, the moral law. And the big question has always been that one, you know, does such a thing exist? You know, is there such a thing as that one about the facts? And all of a sudden, there's this shift into thinking, well, actually, maybe... 
what we ought to be thinking about when we're studying ethics or thinking about ethics is just what we say about it or how we might feel about it or the more of a shift in onto the sort of the analysis of the concepts but also then a, with that comes a shift into think about what's going on inside our heads the moral psychology of it all and the kind of the sense of what am I actually doing when I'm making a value judgment or if I'm thinking about what I ought to do and somehow thinking that that might be res- that we should the focus should change from just trying to discover properties that might be good or bad or all the rest of it out there in the world to trying to focus a little bit more on what's going on inside our own minds and that really interesting connection I guess just last little thing between the relationship between language between the word and the world how they connect into each other which is obviously going to spawn actually a huge movement in sort of modern philosophy you know sort of might even define modern philosophy and we can kind of see it here uh, just really and we can get a grip on it and it's a really nice thing I think for A-level students to get a grip on that it's a really exciting way in uh, through metaethics to actually grasp hold of this business of the philosophy of language I guess and how that ties into our, our ethical concerns yeah thanks Paul yeah in fact that's that's really good so just to tie those two discussions together and just then think about that previous episode as a way to get us uh, warmed up now for for anti-realism so I think that there's there's one thing we said in the other episode where we were saying metaethics is often really really hard and some students are quite daunted by it even though it's really really exciting there's loads going on because it's often hard to understand whether metaethics is mainly about ontology and what stuff exists or is it about language or is it about motivation and moral psychology or what and actually as we said last week it's actually about all of those things and that's the exciting heady brew but that's the thing that makes it a little bit a little bit daunting and I think, um, yeah, from what you also said, Paul, there's that really interesting historic shift where we've been thinking about what properties exist or what facts there are in the world or whatever what we're talking about, whatever ontological, metaphysical stuff. But the key thing to remember about uh, metaethics is that it's talking about an activity. It's asking big questions about what's the nature of a lived practical activity, something in our lives, right? How we, how we judge, how we're motivated to act, Uh, and so on and so forth and that's something really important that i hope is going to come out through this episode because that's something that moral anti-realists think is a is a big card they can play and really something very very important but we'll 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 see how we do that okay that's great so perhaps just to finish off this segment before we get into some particular anti-realist positions and some of the some of the details so anyone want to kind of have a go at defining anti-realism and then we also need to probably just think about the distinction between cognitivism and non-cognitivism that's that's that looms large does anyone want to have a go at uh, at any of those so i mean anti-realism we can see as the denial that there are any such moral facts i think we can that's a nice easy one i think just to get out there (laughs) although of course that's that's barely uh scratching the surface of the the anti-realist positions in all their complexity which will uh, no doubt bamboozle and befuddle at least me uh, as i try and explain them but yeah, so we, we begin with that simple denial that there are the kinds of moral properties or moral facts that we might have uh, thought were out there. But then, of course, we get into this other distinction between, so we've had our kind of realism versus anti-realism. And then we move on to this other distinction, which is which has just been flagged up of cognitivism and non-cognitivism. And I suppose this is getting that focus on sort of what's going on in our minds, in our heads, and also in our language when we are talking about morality and doing 
um, the practical activity of you know making judgments, commending actions, and all the rest of it. And if you're a cognitivist, I think it's pretty easiest to see it as a kind of um, a, 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 a claim about language. Then actually, it's quite simple. You think that language is a basic tool of communication, and you're expressing or you're sorry describing your beliefs, and you're talking about the way that the world actually is. Uh, and things pretty much are, you know, your language is doing what it seems to do. So uh, if I say, I think that I'm currently involved in a podcast with two fine philosophers from the King Edwards uh, school tradition, I believe that that's the case. And it turns out that it's, that belief, of course, is capable of being true or false. It's something we could check. Uh, potentially, I've been, uh, maybe it's false. Maybe I've um, made up my previous connection to King Edward Starbridge, but, you know, there's a claim that can be verified as true or false and essentially it's just saying something that kind of I don't know paints a picture of the world that can either be true or it can be false it has what we might call a truth value and most of our kind of standard beliefs or indeed our kind of claims to knowledge uh, are, are of that form and so we might think of a cognitive field um, of investigation, something like science paradigmatically just goes out there and finds out what's true about the world and makes statements, you know, water boils at 100 degrees Celsius, given certain pressures and temp- blah, blah, blah. And these are all fun- kind of facts and they're all true and you can kind of check them out. And language essentially does what, you, when you use language and your, your basic thought is that language uh, is cognitivist in, in its kind of shape, then it just does what you think it does. Non-cognitivism, as perhaps the non the, the non prefix there suggests, is again a denial of that. But that's where it gets a bit more complicated, because then we've got to think about. So if your if your moral language isn't cognitivist in character, well, well what is it? What else sort of goes on um, in your mind, and and then when you obviously reveal the contents of your mind uh, through your speech or through your, your through your language. And here, of course, then you sort of notice that, in fact, when we use our language, we do lots of different things other than just merely describing to each other information about the way the world is. I mean, thankfully, because otherwise things would be rather boring, wouldn't they, if we were merely kind of giving each other information. So you notice, of course, that perhaps sometimes you express emotion through your um, you know, through your language. You might say, oh, my God, ah, you know, uh, when you realise that, I know your uh, podcast is frozen or your your server is down or something like that. No, there's these kinds of expressions of horror or sometimes we might, teachers obviously we're very familiar to sort of giving commands like sit down or um, get out or please come in um, or welcome to your philosophy lesson. And these things are, of course, not things that have any kind of truth value. They're just language doing something else than trying to give accurate descriptions of the way the world is. We're not trying to refer to uh, any properties that are out there or any particular quality that can be verified or falsified. We're just doing something else. Maybe we're asking questions. Maybe we're trying to convince, persuade, all the rest of it. But we're not dealing in those kinds of factual descriptions, uh, which we are dealing with under a kind of cognitivist account of what our language is up to. So it's kind of that sense of, I guess, in a way, if you're non-cognitivist, you're a bit suspicious about what language is doing. You're sort of you're saying that perhaps it's a little bit deceptive, whereas if you're a cognitivist, you you think it's much more simple um, and straightforward. That's great, thanks, Paul. Uh, uh, ben, anything to add from you? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of 
a couple of bits and bobs to kind of bung in. I suppose from from a sort of teaching and, and, and learning perspective about this, one of the things that I think students have, have worth considering, like when they're talking about this or when they're writing about it, is actually to kind of make sure that you understand that you can be a cognitivist about some things and a non-cognitivist about others. That it's not that X is a cognitivist and Y is a non-cognitivist. Because if you're going to talk to, without any spoilers, if you're talking about AJ Air and we say, oh, oh, he's a non-cognitivist. Well, he's about some things, but he's not, but he's certainly not a non-cognitivist about other things. I mean, he's really a cognitivist about some other things. So it's about this idea of don't think that everybody's got to be in one camp or the other. And it's, it depends what you're talking about. And we're the same. So one of the ways in which we might, and it also helps us kind of analyze this as well, is very often if I'm talking about this sort of stuff, we can mention things like talking to people about what, what do you think the greatest album of all time is or something like that. Now, and I normally balance this off against what's your favorite album of all time? Because those are two different questions because your favorite album might not be the best. You just like it. It's just your favorite album. Now, that one, you're being descriptive in your way of dealing with things. You're actually t- saying something factual. This is my favorite album. I can empirically prove it by the amount of times I've listened to it, by the amount of joy that I feel when I listen to it and so on. Now, if we're talking about the greatest album of all time, you've then got to fall into a bit of a discussion about whether or not there is a finite list of thing, of points that need to be hit in order for something to be the greatest album of all time. Or whether or not, when I say something's the greatest album of all time, all I'm doing is trying to express some sort of approval to it, to tell you that it's the album that you ought to buy. It's something that you ought to listen to, kind of an instruction or an encouragement or whatever it is. But exactly what both of you said, kind of right here, um, that it's, it's to do with this idea of, of language but then also the fact that language is working in different ways, that sometimes what appears to be descriptive isn't always descriptive when you actually really look at it. That I, And th- it, this kind of links back a little bit to a point I made last week where I said it's what I liked about looking at sort of the metaphysics side is you suddenly realize how many different type of facts there are in the world. You just think about facts as being like colors and shapes and smells. And then all of a sudden you've got like relational properties of things and things like this. You go, wow, the world's really more complicated than I thought it was. And this is the interesting thing about language as well. You know, if I say to somebody, can you write a sentence down? They'll write down the cat sat on the mat or the sky is blue or something. And then you realize that there's loads of sentences. They don't all do that. Like go and stand in the corner is a sentence. And um, what time is it is a sentence. And Sentences do loads of different things, and sometimes they do things that they don't appear to be doing. And so it blows language open in the same way that it kind of the world is blown open by looking at the metaphysics of it. So this is, goes back to this kind of connoisseur sort of thing that it's actually kind of like this is top end, top end ethics. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, great. Thanks for both of you to ex- getting into the details of that really crucial distinction, cognitivism and non-cognitivism. So in fact, just to summarise students where we've got to, so the thought might be language is doing actually quite a lot of different things. So it can be descriptive, we can be aiming to describe the world. So the cat is on the mat, the brown cat is on the mat. And these things might, these uh, statements might be 
true, they might be false. Uh, and often the phrase used is their truth aptness. They have a truth value and it might be true, might be false. You might be right, you might be wrong. You might think you're saying something true. It turns out what you're saying is false. There isn't a cat on the mat. Well, there is a cat on the mat, but it's not brown, it's grey, right? But then we start to think, okay, so in fact, we notice that language and indeed how our minds are working and then how we're communicating with everyone, we're actually doing loads of different things. And you've heard some different examples. You've heard commands, you've heard questions, you've heard uh, other things as well. We'll come on to lots more, I'm sure, as we go through the, the episode. And then Ben's just introduced a really nice idea so two nice ideas. One, we're going to think about some non-cognitivists, but you've got to think that they and perhaps we might be non-cognitivists about some areas of our lives, e.g. moral discourse and moral thought, but cognitivists about other areas of our lives, such as scientific thought and scientific discourse, for example. And then a the really interesting thought, which I won't say too much more about because we'll leave it to, for the third segment, we might say, look, this statement or this utterance on the surface seems to be doing one thing. But actually, if you think about it hard, it's really doing something else. It's got a different function. So it seems as if we're describing something because that's how the, the words work in the sentence. But what's really going on is something else. And that will get us into non-conversion in the third segment. But we won't spoil it. We'll we'll leave it for there. But there is one thing, one other thing I want to say uh, before we end this segment, and probably it's just an exercise for students, which I think might be helpful, just to really understand this distinction between cognitivism and non-cognitivism. Just write down, perhaps just go back and listen to some of the examples Paul and Ben were giving, and thinking about the types of utterance that they were giving, and then think about in your own life, perhaps just review what's been going on the last two or three hours, perhaps talking with people, if you've been talking with people. What utterances have they been using? What utterances have you been using, right? Think, just list all the different ways in which language can function and how you use language and try and give us give some examples. And that's a really useful exercise to then bring home the thought that, hey, language is fantastic. It's hugely varied. Isn't it wonderful, right? So I just I feel like for the sake of both our schools, Ben used the example of like go stand in the corner as a, a kind of a, a command. And I was using the word get out. Just to be clear, these are just illustrative examples and not in any way uh, reflective of the kinds of teaching or the old fashioned and antiquated practices you'll get from your teachers at any King Edward school. Now speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, yeah, in fact, perhaps you should have examples such as come in and have this bar of chocolate. <laughs> that would have been much more appropriate um, it, it tells against I think me and Ben that we didn't think of those examples um, straight up and as soon as we had, had a, the idea of a command in the back of our heads it was immediately get out and stand in the corners around punishment and discipline rather than reward or enticement or any other sort of nice thing <laughs> okay well let's leave it there perhaps I should just say to both of you shut up and um <laughs> Uh, we'll leave it there and then um, as I say we're going to do non-cognitivism in the third segment in the second segment though we're going to come back to cognitivism and think about anti-realism and think about John Mackey's error theory and welcome back 
Before we move into this segment, it's just to remind you to check out our website. If you go to my website, uh, Simon Kirchin, K-I-R-C-H-I-N, uh, search for that. Um, then at the top, there's some tabs, and one of the tabs says Pod Schools. On that, I've got a list of topics that I'm recording at the moment, and I normally keep it up to date, so it will change over the summer into the autumn. Uh, search for a list of topics. If there's something that grabs you, please email me, writing with questions, comments, and we'll try to incorporate some of your questions and ideas into the recording. If you find uh, there's a recording that's already happened, but you've still got some questions, Still email me and I'll get some people back in the room and we might do some Q&A roundtables where I fire questions at unsuspecting teachers and see if they can they can answer them. I'm sure Paul and Ben will be up for that. I'm sure they'll be able to answer any questions you choose to throw at them. Okay, so we've discussed moral anti-realism in general and introduced that really important distinction between cognitivism and non-cognitivism. Um, but I suppose the question arises, what sort of anti-realist should we be? If we're going to say, look, there's no moral stuff, you know, how, how would we flesh that position out more? So let's start with one of the key stances, key positions in metaethics, and that's moral error theory, and think about the work of the Australian philosopher John Mackey. So, Paul, do you want to introduce uh, Mackey's error theory for us, please? Yes, sure. Um, well, thank you, Simon. Yeah, um, this is one of those books. Invent- so Mackey writes a get, he writes about his error theory in a little book called Ethics: Inventing Right and Wrong. And I think from that little subtitle of Inventing Right and Wrong, you can see that he's clearly going to be uh, an anti-realist in his in his views. And it's one of those books where again the first line is really really good, very very clear. So I recommend all um, all students out there do dip into the, the original text. And you'll find there are very bald statement. He calls it a bald statement himself in his opening sentence, just which just says this: there are no objective moral values. That makes it very, very clear. And so he's going to be arguing for that, and that is, of course, uh, an ontological or a metaphysical kind of thesis. And it's also one that's sceptical. He's just he's denying something. So for the most part, when we think about his error theory, we've got to think about it. Uh, I think as a sceptical or a sort of a destructive um, doctrine, really. He's, he's not trying to put forward initially a kind of positive case. But we obviously need to say a little bit more about why we've ended up calling this thing, that what, what we associate with Mackey, an error theory and why, why that might tie into the argument of that book, that there are no objective moral values. Because what's interesting about Mackey is he thinks that it's really, really important that we realise that most people take the kind of the common sense view that we met in our previous podcast, actually, that there are objective moral values and that they are uh, things that when, when we do our, our moral language our, or think about morality, make our judgments and our decisions, we tend to operate with the view that there are these moral properties out there, that they really exist, that they have in whatever shape or form. And of course, as we've seen, uh, the the philosophical tradition is pretty much behind that. It seems to, from Plato through to Kant, uh, through to the utilitarians, through even to Moore, we've got a sense that there no one's actually questioning that there are objective moral values there. It's this kind of the background assumption. It's um, you can even see it with Moore. His first move is to whilst he's, he's he does his kind of open question argument on on naturalism. There's no sense that 
maybe there's no such thing as moral values. We've just got to move to non-natural properties if they're not going to be natural properties. So Mackey thinks, well, obviously this is wrong. In some way, there are no moral truths. There are no objective moral values. And we need to give an account of why it is that people think that there are. And when they talk about morality and do morality, make moral judgments, give commands, recommendations, tell people they ought to do things or ought not to do things, somehow they must be in error when they're doing so because they're referring to things or they think they're referring to things, moral properties, moral qualities, things like goodness or badness, which do not in fact exist. So they are in error. They believe something is the case, that there are moral properties to which they are referring, and in fact they are, there are no such properties. Therefore, in doing morality ordinarily, and indeed the way that the Western tradition has done morality, it's fallen into that error of believing that there are certain properties which do not in fact exist, hence the term error theory. And we'll probably explain a little bit more about why you might think error theory is true in a minute or two. That's great. Thanks, Paul. Ben, anything to add to just that description of error theory? No, I think that I think that's basically covered it. I think that if you if you did just want to tie it back, I suppose, to the the example I gave earlier about, you know, kind of like trying to explain what the greatest album in the world is and that sort of approach, then you can kind of look at it as kind of you could be a kind of macky error theorist mm-hmm. about about greatest albums of all time. You could say that I talk I talk as if there is a greatest album of all time because I genuinely believe that there is one. But if you actually investigated the world to find out what the features of the greatest album of all time is, you would never find a final, definite, even consistent set of properties. And even if you did, they wouldn't necessarily tell you what the actual greatest album in the world is. And therefore, anybody that claims X is the greatest album in the world. You know, if I say, I don't know, Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys is the greatest album in the world, and somebody else says, no, no, it's clearly Sgt. Pepper by the Beatles, we're both wrong because it's not true that either of those are the greatest in the world because there isn't a greatest in the world because they can't be because it's not a thing. I think Mackie himself gives a really nice example about why we actually, how it is the case that sort of objectivity is sort of built into our. Judgments. He gives an example of um, imagine someone's going for a job and they think about whether or not to take a job in biological warfare. It's very similar to uh, we had this this same sort of episode, sorry the same sort of problem discussing utilitarianism. Utilitarianism actually. He says actually if you're thinking about should I take a job in biological warfare research, it's not a matter of like do I want to do it or will it be an interesting job or will I find this pleasurable or intellectually stimulating or all these sorts of things you know and should you know should I ask other people to you know if, if other people are in relevantly similar circumstances to me and are going to take this job should they do it what really matters is kind of well is this thing wrong is it right or wrong that I actually do this job and so it's really really clear that we want um, to find when we when we when we talk ordinarily and make moral judgments ordinarily speaking that we're actually doing so with a kind of objectivity built into them. And it's something that, about our moral language that he's really keen to sort of, uh, well, our moral judgments particularly, he's keen to draw attention to because it seems so surprising that the, the very idea that we could be in error, that we could be wrong, as it were, and systematically wrong as it's going to turn out, is just so surprising that we need to be kind of reminded. 
he's just trying to say, well, look, you really do normally think that moral judgments have this kind of objective quality to them. Um, and it really matters that this is something that we should really care about. Great. Um, good. And just then uh, just a summary from me, just um, topping off your, your, your discussion there, just to link it back to the first segment. So as, as we saw, realism and cognitivism are different positions, but they go really nicely together. OK. And in fact, most times realists are cognitivists and cognitivists are realists. OK. So realist is a claim about what stuff exists. Cognitivism is a claim about how language works and what's going on in your head and, and so on and so forth. Right. So there's stuff out there in the world. And when we're having moral discourse and moral thought, we're saying things about things that are out there in the world that we think exist. And sometimes we, we, we get things right, sometimes we get things wrong. So we can say true things, we can say false things. So Mackey is a cognitivist, right? He really think he thinks, just as a matter of description, a kind of sociology really, that we all think that what's going on when we're engaging in moral discourse and making judgments and talking to our friends and thinking it through ourselves is we think that we are saying that there really is some moral stuff out there. Things are really good and things are really bad. There really is a greatest album in the world, right? But it turns out that we're in error, right? There isn't a greatest album in the world. There isn't goodness. There isn't badness. There isn't. This is the example I had from the podcast on uh, moral realism there you know hats aren't really elegant right none of this stuff i mean you can be an error theorist about many things but but with about moral stuff and about greatest albums about aesthetic qualities of hats it turns out we're wrong we're in error and and paul's just introduced a really interesting word here and that's the word systematically so it's not just that we happen to be wrong with one or two judgments we're making moral judgments and they're just not the sorts of things that could ever get to be true because there really aren't any objective moral values or qualities or features or whatever we call them. So that's really, really important. Okay, so that's kind of error theory 101. So do we want to move on then to explore why he, what his conception of objective moral properties or values is and then tie that into the arguments he gives who wants to have a crack at that i can have a look i mean i i teach plato so I'm, and he takes plato as his uh, kind of paradigm for this so i'm quite keen I, I quite enjoy talking about this so he says that if you think about what objective moral qualities would uh, values would have to be they'd have to have a couple of things built into them they'd have to have they'd have to give you direction they'd have to tell you what to do and they'd also have to make you want to do it as well. They have to provide you with a reason uh, for doing it. And he says, well, um, if you think about you know, that, those are quite interesting uh, properties of any property, of any quality or any thing to consider. And he takes his paradigm for, for this, Plato's doctrine of the forms. Now, I don't know how familiar, I don't, I'm not sure how often it gets studied at A-level anymore. Ben could perhaps tell me, does anyone study Plato's? Republic of the Doctrine of Forms. He crops up in Mino, and then if you've got a particularly thorough teacher, you'll get some stuff on the forms, but he's not on the spec anymore. Right, okay. So in 20 seconds, I'll try and sum up Plato's <laughs> Doctrine of the Forms, potentially unsuccessfully. But the basic thought is that um, there's – take any thing in the world or any um, 
well, yes, it, it, we'll go with things. So something like a chair. There's lots and lots of chairs. And there's this issue of what makes all these different chairs chairs because they all resemble each other in some ways. There's many, many chairs and they all seem to share some sort of, all the particular chairs seem to share some one sort of universal uh, quality of being a chair. But obviously the being a chair doesn't exist in the ordinary uh, kind of realm of, or well, he calls it the realm of, of change and decay, which is just the you know, what we see with through our senses, the visible realm, um, the sensory realm, the, the ordinary world. So he then says, well, that, this seems to be evidence because there is something we do recognise that they all share this quality, that there must be a kind of supersensory realm. He calls it the intelligible realm, but it's something that's accessible through reason, not through the senses. And that's what really is the realm of the form. So there's the realm of the forms for which every single particular thing, there is this universal this object up there, this abstract object, which is eternal, non-physical, and the rest of it, that just exists in this other realm, and that somehow each individual chair participates in. And what goes for chairs also goes for uh, moral qualities like justice and goodness and all the rest of it. And in fact, at the very top of the tree, the form of the formers, as it were, is this kind of form of the good. And the form of the good is such that when you grasp it, when you understand it, when you see it, it kind of just makes you both see what the good is, so it gives you direction, but it also gives you an overwhelming motive to want to sort of perform that that thing. And interestingly, there's a, there's a nice example of, of some... The only people who can really access this are, are philosophers who've had... Well, actually, it turns out a, a very, very, very long uh, course of philosophy, but also mathematics, military training, et cetera, et cetera. So it's quite... It's, quite, yeah, it's not until you're, you're 50... And I'm looking, I'm aspiring towards being a 50 soon. So uh, I can't wait to maybe get this knowledge. But it's not until you're 50 that you actually are able to really kind of access this stuff. But when you do access it, yeah, as I say, it tells you what to do and makes you want to do it. And there's this really lovely example of the philosophers who've just escaped from a kind of non philosophical nightmare world of the cave, as he calls it, a very famous simile. Perhaps you've even come across it if you haven't studied Plato. Um, something a bit like The Matrix, I guess. But that's such an old film, no one even knows what The Matrix is anymore. It's almost as old as Plato, isn't it? But there's this idea that there's this realm of illusion, um, this world of, uh, yeah, it, it, trapped in the sensory world where you just get nonsense all the time. But they're at, they've escaped. They've escaped the cave and they just live in a world, a world of pure ideas and thinking and all the rest of it. But they see that they ought to go back down, in that it's the right thing, that they should rule the mob who lived down in, in the cave. And in seeing this, they just go back down. And they don't want to, but they're somehow motivated to do it. They, they would far rather just stay out of the cave and just do philosophy all day and just contemplate the truth. And as all students of philosophy know, that's there's no finer thing to do. But instead, because they they see that they see this property of the good and they see what it tells them to do, they then are completely motivated to go and do it. We have to pay real attention to that idea of these properties, these moral qualities, these objective values, not just how they exist, but that they also have this motivating quality on anyone who apprehends them. So that's kind of what they must be. So Mackey says, well, this is what these objective moral qualities would have to be if they were to exist. Great. That's really helpful, Paul. Yeah, Ben, any thoughts from you on that? Uh, Yeah, I think you can tie this back a little bit to what we were talking about last week as well i think that the the way to look at it is 
maybe the naturalist has got a bit of an advantage here, I suppose, because when you're talking about things like um, happiness or it being, we talked about like non-reductively being related to reason and things, we can talk about how being related to happiness obviously motivates you to do stuff, like it makes you happy. So happiness is goodness, therefore goodness motivates me to do things. You've kind of got that side of things. We'll see why that might be a problem, obviously, as we go through. But then again, with more. I mean, if you just look at G.E. Moore and his whole idea of these non-natural properties, and in particular, the non-natural property of goodness, I think if Mackie's going to kind of talk about more, then he's got to say that it's not just enough that we recognize that something is good. If we are going to recognize it as good, and I mean really recognize it as good, not just be able to point to it and go, that's good, like saying that's red, but for, for us to grasp that it is good, then that automatically implies that there is a, to use some of the phrases that are bandied around here, kind of like a to-be-doneness about that thing as well, that that to-be-doneness comes with the understanding. It's not as if I can go, I understand that that's good, uh, but it, but you don't have to do it. Or I understand that's good, but you shouldn't want it. It comes with the motivational factor built into it, this kind of intrinsic motivation behind it it's this compelling thing so you can you can even tie this in with you know kind of g more bits of uh naturalism and that's kind of his bugbear i think is that idea that they've all got this idea that you get to know this property and then all of a sudden ping you know what you're supposed to be doing and that's kind of his his sort of target i think but yeah every everything that um that paul was saying there is 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 spot on it's just that that kind of even outside of platonism it kind of filters through he's aware of the poison of kind of platonism kind of seeping through everything yeah and in fact as we said last week so uh, g moore 1903 open question argument it sets the scene for so much of um 20th and now 21st century metaethics and i mean the, these the the two big um anti-realist kind of families that we're talking about so the error theory and non-cognitivist family they're kind of the two big stances that emerge in the 20th century actually we, we kind of i think we're doing this in the in the right order in terms of philosophy but it's the wrong date order so just in case students yeah. are getting confused more publishes principia ethica in 1903 then you've got various forms of non-cognitivism coming 30s 40s 50s 60s mackie's ethics inventing right and wrong was published in 1977 and and perhaps just just say one thing so i don't know if this is true but i've always been told that when ajr first heard john mackie present his error theory ajr said ah that's what i should have said <laughs> but yeah so that's that's both of you, that's really helpful so so at the core of it we've got mackie saying this is what cognitivists say hey and i'm a cognitivist but i'm not a realist i'm just going to reject the realism because and this is now going to lead us on to his arguments because these these moral properties or qualities or objective facts they're just so and this is a word that he used a lot in 1977 they're just so queer although nowadays we might say they're, they're just very strange and and weird because you've got these two aspects that these qualities both have to have or properties or feats, whatever we call them. They've got to be both objectives. They've got to be independent of, of human beings, but they've also got to be, they've got to have that as, as Ben mentioned, that to be doneness about them, that motivational quality. When we apprehend them, we feel kind of magnetically pulled that we have to do them. So they have to both exist independently of human beings and all of our concerns. And yet when we come to know them, 
or so when we think we know them, then they've got this magnetic motivational quality about them. And Mackie thinks that's just weird. Um, perhaps I've just spoilt it. So that's that's the that's the comment. Any <laughs> thoughts about? So, so do you want to do you want to give your own spins on what's what's what Mackie calls the argument from queerness? People nowadays they call it just the argument from being strange or being weird. I think it's just that basic thought of th- these properties are just unlike anything else that we can think of in the natural world. They just you know, just what are they? They're just so. Yeah, the way they would exist. So he, he he splits the argument from from queerness into two parts, doesn't he? He gives it there's a metaphysical element which you've just described, and then there's also the epistemological one, which is you know how do we actually come to know about these things? So it's not just that they are weird and that they must exist in some sort of they would have to exist in some way. Yeah, you know, we can't sense them, we can't detect them, we haven't got a moral properties way of, you know, there's no way of looking for them other than and this is where he gets onto the um the epistemological side through some sort of faculty of intuition of moral intuition and he describes that as something of a lame answer he uses that sort of playground insight he says that is you know, to say some special faculty of intuition is the only answer that a, a clear-eyed objectivist can actually give but it's a lame answer and he thinks it's lame because what it doesn't do is it doesn't, in his mind, explain what that relationship, the to-be-doneness is, how it relates to the natural facts. You know, just precisely what is that relationship? Uh, how does it happen? Because it doesn't seem to be, it's not like a truth of logic. We can't, um, we can't just analyse, so go back to more and thinking about conceptual analysis. We can't just analyse the meaning of a term and then to see that it then has with it the to be done this because that's not part of the meaning of a given term. It's an added property or an added quality that these objective values would have to have to them. But it's not clear what that connection would be. How does any natural fact connect to any value judgment? How does, you know, what is the connection between Simon's hat and its being elegant? Uh, and we need to have some sort of spelling out of that connection uh, and just to say, well, I've got some special faculty of intuition through which I can sense the elegance of hats is, to use that phrase, a lame answer again. And I think he's really, so we, we've seen his attack on Platonism, but also the attack on the intuitionism of of Moore is, is kind of very clear there as well. And I think that's, yeah, he's just trying to really say, just notice the almost, you might have kind of just got used to hearing when we talk about ethics you might have just got used to hearing about intuitions and a faculty of intuition and thinking oh, that's a, a respectable and a good thing and that's fine it's part of the you know our framework i've got i can see i can hear i can smell and i can also sense goodness uh through some sort of way and he's just saying, well, hang on a minute that's actually a really that's a kind of weird superpower right you know that's that's much better than being able to see through walls or have x-ray vision or something you can actually see the good blimey <laughs> that's amazing but actually let's be honest folks you need you owe us a pretty good explanation of what that connection is and how it works and all the rest of it if you're going to stand it up and he says we just can't stand it up um it's just too weird great uh ben yeah i mean just to tie into a, a couple of other things i suppose one of the things a couple of things that are worth mentioning i guess is that this discussion of queerness of the of moral properties also ties into another argument that he's got which appears before this because actually the way that he's trying to argue 
is that he's actually trying to explain a particular phenomenon. He's actually trying to explain the idea of, look, if there are objective moral values, why can nobody decide upon them? Why is it that from culture to culture, there's disagreements, from era to era, there's disagreements that within cultures and eras, there are people who disagree with each other. So on the on a wide scale, on a small scale, there's disagreement. Now, this seems to be a much bigger set of disagreements than disagreements about just ordinary facts about the world that are right there in front of us. We we don't disagree about colours and sizes and shapes and things like that. But we do have massive, dis- huge disagreements about the nature of morality and just normal everyday moral judgments. And his argument is, it's an abductive argument. So it's, it's based around this idea of best explanations. How do I best explain the fact that there's widespread moral disagreement when you actually look at the world um, and through history and so on? And his argument is, well, either there are such things as moral facts, but at least one party involved in the debate is wrong. At least one, could be both, but at least one of them has just got the wrong idea. Or there are no moral facts. That's like the old record thing. It's either there are a list of facts about what makes the world's best record and one of us is wrong, or there just isn't the world's best record. And so nobody can ever finish the discussion because it never leads you to the right answer. And this is why he wants to introduce this idea of moral properties. He says, well, if the answer is there are moral properties, but somebody's getting them wrong, let's have a look at what these properties that we're all supposed to be aware of, but only some people have the right access to at particular times alike. And this is why the the queerness of it comes in. And when it comes down to that stuff to do with intuition, because that's one that we really want to know, if you like, is it's kind of like, well, somebody should be able to work it out, right? It always reminds me of, there's a couple of things it reminds me of. The, the, the smaller one is there's a line in Nietzsche where he's basically slating Immanuel Kant. Um, and he says, you know, Kant asks the question, how is synthetic a priori knowledge possible? And his answer is through a faculty. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of like, this is not an answer. This is, you know, <laughs> how, how on earth is this an answer to just say, by a faculty? Oh, well done. I mean, we could answer any question like that. How do how do fish breathe underwater? They have an underwater breathing faculty. Of course <laughs> they do. But what is it? I mean, that's a, you haven't explained anything. Um, and really, I think that the thing that he wants to, to get across as well, which is worth mentioning, just I only mention this because he's going to come up again later, is this is a really nice time to sort of introduce David Hume, who I think is almost like the unsung hero of all of this meta-ethics, because a lot of the stuff that they're going to be talking about or have been talking about, he's already sort of got it half-kick-started off a couple hundred years before, to some extent. And one of the things that Hume is interested in is the fact that if our moral judgments were merely down to reason, so if because the other part of intuitionism is not that we see these moral things, but that we intuit them through reason, that we can rationalise and think about things and understand them kind of cognitively just in our heads sort of thing. He says that, well, if if morality was just about reason, we would never be motivated to do anything because actually all action, not just moral action, all action is dependent upon the two aspects of us, the passions and the understanding. So if I have a desire, that desire is kind of lacking direction until it's kind of tagged onto a belief. So if I'm thirsty, I obviously have a desire for a drink, but you can only explain why I'm going to the kitchen to go to the fridge 
if you if you understand that I have the belief that there must be a drink in the fridge, and when you plug those two things into each other, I act. Now, on the other hand, if I've just got a belief, but I have no associated desire, want, need, whatever it might be, then I just don't do anything. I've got tons of beliefs, which I'm not currently acting on because my desires aren't compelling me to do it. And so the additional part of this kind of underlying what Mackie's talking about, because this is, is actually going to play quite a big role in a lot of the other people later on, is that what we appear to be saying is that knowledge of a fact is enough to motivate you regardless of any desires you have. And that's another part of, well, there just aren't facts like that. They're, we don't know of any other fact in the world. Even that something is tasty is not enough to make me eat it if I don't fancy something to eat. No individual belief is a compelling reason to act until a desire is attached. And therefore, even if I did believe that something was good, it wouldn't necessarily compel me to act without the corresponding desire, in which case there must be more to the reasons why we do things than just moral properties, because we don't know of any properties like that. There are natural properties and the desires that we have towards them. Great. Really helpful from both of you. So just to summarise, and I have a little bit of commentary as well, just trying to tie the two episodes together. So we've heard about uh, Mackey's error theory, remember? So he's cognitivist, but anti-realist. He's really suspicious about the types of uh, moral property that people as- assume that exist because he thinks they're very, very strange. They've got these two qualities they're objective, they're independent of us. Often the phrase used is mind independent, and yet they compel us to act. And then, uh, and, that, and uh, as, as Ben just summarised, so in fact, that, there's, there's two arguments. There's the argument from queerness or strangeness, and then there's, as Ben was summarising, the argument from disagreement, right? And it's a be- best explanation argument. What's the best explanation for why people disagree? Is it because people, are, well, at least one of us is getting it wrong? Or is it because, hey, there's no none of these moral facts? And then Ben was just summarising in a really nice way what's going on with, with, with Hume and how he's kind of in the background of all of these debates. And I suppose that's, that's something we mentioned in the last episode. I'm just going to bring it to the fore as well. One, one of the big kind of thing that's going on in all of this big history of metaethical discussion is that interplay between stuff that exists in the world and particularly the rise of modern science so the naturalistic world the world that we can that we can see and we can sense and we can measure and we can verify and then there's the whole aspect we think is it seems to be absolutely essential to our moral lives, but also other parts of our lives where we're motivated, where we think there is reasons that we ought to do or should do things. This all this to be doneness, but actually capturing that in naturalistic terms is really really hard, if not impossible. So there's this huge tension going on, all of these discussions between the natural scientific worldview and then all of this to-be-doneness, this motivation, this this word we used last time, this normativity. So that's got a really interesting interplay which is coming out in all of these these debates. Before we stop and we and we move on to the third segment then, can I ask the two of you, what, what do you think about moral error theory? Are you attracted to it or or not? I would say for me, it's one of those, I suppose, like this, like nihilism, like global scepticism, all those sorts of things. There is a real pull 
to it in the fact that it it just seems actually when you when it comes down to it really right you just kind of go yeah I, I guess so, kind of like, you know, the emperor's clothes, are, you know, aren't really there, maybe. But the point is that that's actually not always the right way to look at things, because as Mackie was well aware of himself, there's, there's more to it than this. You can, you, can, you can just say, look, there are no moral facts, the end. But that doesn't leave you in a position where you can just walk away from that, just as if I go, yeah, all right, I could be being tricked by an evil demon right now, and none of this exists. That doesn't mean that I suddenly stop living. I then have to work out what I am now going to do. Are there other reasons for me to continue doing what I'm doing and all those sorts of things? And so for Mackie, I think that when I read Mackie, I like the fact that he's diagnosing a problem, a potential problem, maybe one which can be overcome, but it is a problem. Uh, And he's asking us to consider what we do next. And he's forcing us to think about the social and psychological elements of morality, which we might have overlooked. He's asking us to think about why we want to have objective moral values, why society might believe that there are, even if there aren't, and to work with that. And that's an interesting discussion to have, because ultimately, like scepticism, to go back to David Hume, you know, once you leave the classroom, your deeply rooted scepticism about the existence of the world suddenly evaporates into thin air. And the same kind of happens with moral realism this is why i quite like guys like albert camus you know we can sit there and be all nihilistic and go oh my god there's no actual real morality in the world blah 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 blah. and then you switch on the telly and you see real human suffering and you can't help but do something about it you can't help but feel and so there's a nice actually weirdly ironically there's kind of a human side of this that comes out that makes me drawn to it that it actually maybe forces you to look at human beings a bit more, not think about morality as this abstract thing, but think it is as this real human bit of psychology, sociology, which you can't just ditch if you find out that it's not true. <laughs> and, you know, and that's what I find compelling about it, I suppose. Yeah, um, I was in agreement with Ben, but I, I just want to add in what, what it makes me think about is well, what we might mean by objective a little bit, because the claim that there are no objective moral values and we are in error if we if we believe that there are and if we act as if there are. Well, obviously, I'm very attracted to that if we think that the target of that is something like the platonic forms, which yeah, he himself admits, he says, maybe I'm taking a bit of a soft target if I'm you know, tilting at this particular windmill because they're a, a bit of a strange flight of philosophical fancy, perhaps, we might we might say. I'm sure Plato would have other ideas. But so if that's what you mean by objectivity and the objectivity of value, sure, that's there are no such things. But then it gets into this question of, well, does objective have to mean kind of that sort of completely outside of this world, completely divorced from human um, human society? Could, could we say something, what if, if everybody felt something or, th- or thought something, even if it was kind of depend- you know, mind-dependent in the sense it was dependent on the fact that the human race existed or something like that? Well, could we make some claims at that kind of level? And might they be sort of potentially objective? Uh, if, if we kind of moderate, if we have a very weakened sense of, of objective here, which just sort of means, what if everyone felt that? And I sort of sense that we can get into, and back to good old Hume again, some interesting discussions there about, well, are there certain, and so Mackie says he's arguing for the subjectivity of value, isn't he? Are there certain subjective reactions in the sense that they are um, 
in us or our feelings as opposed to some sort of independent from us objectively existing transcendent kind of value thing is there some sense that we can talk we can ground morality in on that kind of level and i'm I'm more persuaded by by that thought so i and i think mackie it's interesting that this book itself involves once he's done his destructive work which is you know um quick clear and brutal at the start he then himself uh, as you were saying earlier simon tries to actually then put together some sort of coherent account of what we're doing when we're doing ethics and to give it a much more of a status and, and sort of meaningfulness than you'd expect from because yeah, you'd expect as ben said maybe your first reaction would be nihilism at this point you know throw there's no such there's, there are no values anymore we can do what we want but of course he doesn't expect anyone to have that reaction i don't have that reaction in fact no one has that reaction so we've then got the question well what are we actually doing um when we do morality and how can we maybe account for the error but not really maybe we're not really in as much error as we thought because we're only in error if we ever thought we were referring to kind of the platonic forms um when we were doing morality and i don't think that many people in fact are so that's a rather circuitous um route to getting around to saying well i'm, I'm not quite sure um <laughs> what he means but i think there's there's a lot of destructive value clearing things out as ben said yeah, thanks both of you. Yeah, just a few thoughts from me. So, because uh, I've written quite a bit about Mackie and, and error theory and, and this area of metaethics, and in fact, you hit on something, Paul, that that I've always a line I've always pushed because you've got to think about Mackie's target. So you can take Mackie's target being quite extreme, but actually, once you then start thinking and playing around with different conceptions of what we mean might be by objective and to be doneness and how we might be motivated, the target becomes less extreme. And so then the whole position seems perfectly acceptable. And then how how big is the error in the in the first place? Um, and certainly, if if you come to the University of Kent and get taught metaethics by me, you'll you'll get quite a bit of this, uh, kids. You'll find out more if you want to. <laughs> uh, yeah, and um, and yeah, just to point out. So the yeah, the, the first quarter of the of Mackey's ethics inventing right and wrong book is is about metaethics, and then the the other three quarters is all kind of normative ethics and applied ethics where he's clearly trying to do something con- constructive and i suppose just as a as a as a stretch exercise or a challenging exercise for students just to end this segment then the thing to think about is what would happen if everyone became an error theorist what would society look like um what would we what would we do and there's often a position which which is not in any of the specs but we talk a bit about at a universal level called fictionalism where you just think morality is a type of fiction, but it's a useful fiction. It's a bit like, I hope I'm not going to spoil things for anyone. So when we tell young kids that Santa Claus doesn't exist, okay, we still talk about Santa Claus, Father Christmas, and it's still a kind of useful fiction. And perhaps that's what's going on with morality. We still all do it. Well, what's really going on in that? And therefore, how? what's really going on in, with morality? That's perhaps something to, to think about. Uh, but listen, that, both of you, that was really helpful thinking about Mackey's error theory and this kind of cognitivist version of anti-realism. So I'll see you both in the third segment when we think about moral non-cognitivism. And welcome back. So we've been thinking about metaethics. Uh, we've thought about anti-realism in general. We've just done a big segment on Mackey's error theory. And now we're 
thinking about the non-cognitivist family. And I call it non-cognitivist family because there's various positions um, that come in non-cognitivism. So just remember what we've already said. So you don't, you're not as if you're a non-cognitivist about everything. So really we're thinking about people being moral non-cognitivists, or you can be an aesthetic non-cognitivist about the elegance of my hat and so on and so forth. So really we, when we say non-cognitivism, we're talking about moral non-cognitivism, where we've got these moral utterances, uh, shoving past the person was bad, giving charity to those people was good, uh, they acted courageously, she's very cruel, and so on and so forth. And it seems as if we're making sentences or making utterances that state things about the world. And remember Mackie saying, yeah, that is what probably what we're doing. And it turns out, guess what? We're they're always false. We're systematically in error because there can't be any sort of um, objective properties or values that could make those statements true because they're, they're just so metaphysically strange. But there's a different sort of position that says things of, of, of our activity, of language uh, and thinking in a more positive vein. We are doing something valuable. It's just not quite what we thought it was. So, Paul, do you want to pick up the story then with A.J. Eyre? Uh, yeah, sure. A.J. Eyre sort of sets out his stall in one of the really enjoyable books to read. And it's um, it might be an academic philosophy book, but Language, Truth and Logic, where he sort of gets cracking on all of this sort of stuff. It was written by him when he was a young man. I think he was 20, in his early 20s when he began work on it. I think it was published when he was 25. Uh, and it's a really, it's a cracking read, I'd say. I'd, I'd really recommend it. And it's not too technical. There are, there's a few sections, obviously, but um, you can flip between, yeah, flip through the, the longers and really get to the good stuff because he writes really, really well, beautifully, clearly, and with passion and, um, yeah, insight. It's really, it's re- so I, I just like I did with Mackie, I'd like to open with the first line of, of Language, Truth and Logic, if I may, which goes to show, I think, that he was a, a young man in a hurry. I think he genuinely was because he believed he might not actually make it as an academic philosopher because his kind of philosophy was very much out of tune with Oxford, where he found himself uh, and was much more kind of in line with what was going on at Cambridge and also what was happening on the continent, more of which we'll say uh, in a minute. But he opens up the first line of language, truth and logic is the traditional disputes of philosophers are, for the most part, as unwarranted as they are unfruitful. So here we get the sense that he's going to solve these problems. All of those big problems of philosophy that have kind of bedeviled us for such a long time, he's going to clear up for us. Uh, And in doing so, he's doing something, he's going to do it, he said, by focusing in on language. He's not going to try and disprove all the metaphysical systems of, of my friend Plato or um, of Kant or anybody else. What he's going to try and do instead is show that if we just focus on the language that people have been using, then we'll see that, they're, that the, the various claims that are made by the various philosophers, they're not false, they're just meaningless. They lack sense. Now, what's really interesting here is to maybe pin down a little bit about what he's on about, why we might want to focus on this and why it might be such a powerful thing to focus on. Obviously, we're using language all of the time. And there's this really interesting question of, well, what is the relationship between language and the world? You know, how do words mean? Not just what do they mean, but how do they actually gain their meaning? And Eyre kind of, uh, he was a member of, or he popularised in, in England anyway, to the, to the English-speaking world, the views of uh, a bunch of 
philosophers and scientists, sort of scientifically inspired philosophers, I guess, uh, on the continent who met in Vienna and were known as the Vienna Circle, who were sort of logical positivists, we call them. Now. I don't know if you've, yeah, you'll probably come across that term. Those used to call them sort of logical empiricists, but that kind of gives them the sense of they were really into their science. And it's that thinking that they were really into their science, which gives us a way into what air thought made language actually have sense other than you know, rather than being senseless. So his concern is to say, well, actually, let's think about how we can differentiate between those kinds of uh, sentences that we use that actually have got what he calls literal significance, that actually tell us something about the way the world is, that make statements of fact or purport to make statements of fact that we can maybe check out and compare them and uh, with every other sort of sentence. And if we can't sort of, if we can't, uh, say of a given sentence that it does make some sort of claim that could be checked out in the world that makes some sort of you know the cat is on the mat or the brown cat is on the mat or that hat is elegant we'll get to that one in a minute all of those kinds of statements we can sort of do a sifting or a checking to see if they are meaningful or meaningless and he gives us a really easy test for this he calls it the the verification principle and it's just to say that uh, a given sentence is meaningful if and only if the person who utters it or who hears it knows how you could kind of check it out, how you could verify it to see if it was true or not. And you don't have to sort of conclusively verify it, but there just have to be some sort of way uh, of actually seeing whether or not it could be in principle uh, checked out. Because there's obviously some statements that couldn't be. Uh, he gives the example of the claim that there might be uh, mountains on the dark side of the moon. And those days, they hadn't sent rockets up to the dark side of the moon to check if there were mountains or not. But it's a perfectly meaningful, uh, scientifically sounding kind of claim. And it's just trying to say something about the way the world is or to assert something about the way the world is. And all those kinds of statements, Air says, are going to be meaningful if they pass that test of, you know, can we verify it? Can we check it? So there's this nice little slogan, which is that the meaning of a statement is the method of its verification. So something has meaning if you can actually kind of check it out and the way in which you check it out. And for him, it has to be empirical means. And obviously, paradigmatically, that's kind of like the scientific method. But in ordinary language, you don't have to necessarily run around with Bunsen burners and test tubes to check all of our statements. But it's just to say that there are possible sense experiences that you could have that would count towards a statement being true or false. If a statement or a proposition doesn't meet that kind of criterion, then he says, well, that's what we're going to call a pseudo proposition or sort of like fake or false proposition, a kind of empty one. It sounds like it sounds like it's onto something. It sounds like it's a proper, genuine, bona fide, kosher um, sort of proposition. But there's something funny with it. There's something up with it. And it's not doing the business of uh, saying something that's actually kind of factually significant. And he thinks that philosophy has been sort of plagued by that for a bit. He gives a really funny example uh, from the philosopher Bradley of a statement that he thinks a sentence is really seems to affirm something, but really doesn't. And it's this one, which is the absolute with a capital A enters into, but is, it, but is itself uh, incapable of evolution and progress. And he says of that statement, it's not, it's not, it may be emotionally significant to the author, but it's certainly not factually significant to him or indeed anybody else, because how on earth one might go around yeah, checking whether or not the absolute does or does not enter into the evolution uh, and progress uh, is clearly not something that 
we can perhaps even begin to imagine. There's no sort of uh, sensory experiences that we could have in order to check that one out and to see if it was true or not. So we have this really interesting criterion for seeing, is our language meaningful? And he's going to turn that, obviously, onto uh, our moral discourse, our moral language, and see what kind of havoc it wreaks on that. So perhaps I'll pause at that and see if yeah, anyone else wants to say anything on that. Yeah, I, th- I think the um, that's brilliant, yeah. I was going to say that another thing that's that's worth perhaps dragging up a little bit is along with the verification, the empirical verification stuff, he, he also mentions that you can get propositions that are meaningful analytically. That is that the, to give it the uh, the posh phrase, it's that the, the predicate is entailed within the subject. So the subject, which is what your statement is about, the thing that you're referring to, and the predicate being the rest of the sentence, kind of like what you're saying about it. So if I say the cat sat on the mat, the subject is the cat and sat on the mat is the predicate. Now, some statements, the empirical ones that that were being spoken about there are what we call synthetic statements because what they're basically trying to do is take a subject, something that we're aware of, and tell you something new about it or something that you wouldn't necessarily know just from knowing what the subject was. Whereas, and we're talking kind of like in conceptual terms, just because you have the concept of something, it doesn't necessarily know that you mean that you know uh, that particular predicate. But with analytic propositions, it's almost like this inescapability of, of knowing what the predicate is. That if you know what a square is, for example, then you know that being four-sided is a part of being a square. So analytic propositions are meaningful too because a phrase like all squares have four sides isn't necessarily empirically verifiable. I can't necessarily check that all squares have four sides empirically because there might be a square that I haven't seen yet which doesn't have four sides. But I don't have to because the very meaning of the word square means four-sided. So we automatically know that that's true. The problem that he had with these propositions, if you want to call it a problem, but the the issue that he raises with these problems with these propositions is that they're ultimately tautological. They they just unpack what you already know. They just tell you something which is automatically true because the predicate is already entailed within the subject. So they're meaningful, but for him, they're kind of meaningful in the way that kind of maybe algebra can be meaningful. What's what's happening there is understandable, but it's just kind of empty logic without anything really going on. These are statements which can be true or false by the meanings of the terms used without them actually having any impact on the world, that we might be able to have analytic propositions, which maybe don't actually refer to real things. So if, for example, let's just say, for example, we might want to debate about this, but unicorns have one horn. Like that's something that we can say by definition, a unicorn must have one horn then that's true, but there are no unicorns. So that doesn't tell me how many unicorns there really are. It just says that, look, if unicorns do exist, they will have one horn. So this is, I, the reason I raise this is because like later on, I know that when we get into the moral side of things, there are certain criticisms which I might raise later on where people go, aha, but AJM might be wrong about this. And I'm sort of setting that up with a, now don't try and get around this with the analytic stuff because it doesn't <laughs> necessarily help. <laughs> Great. Thanks for both. That's really, really helpful. Okay, so then shall we go straight into what Ayers going to say about moral statements then? Who wants to take that one on? Yeah, because he then says, well, actually, obviously lots of people are going to say, well, sure, there's those um, scientifically verifiable statements that, that I kind of talked about. And sure, there's those analytic statements that, that Ben's talked about. 
But then there's another set of statements as well, which seem to tell us something about the way the world is, but they're not empirically verifiable. And those statements are are statements of value, be it aesthetic value or uh, moral value. And so he's going to try and tell us why why that position is wrong, why it's why it's uh, a mistake to think that there is this third category of of meaningful statements. And he does it by saying, let's let's take let's analyze some moral statements and, and see what we can make of them. And what he does is he says, let's he gives a really good example, a really helpful example. That I think all my students kind of really enjoy when when we get around to it. He says, let's take a, a moral statement like. Uh, you were wrong to steal that money. Now, that seems to say, if, if you look at it, there's a, there's a description of something that's going on. Someone's stolen some money. That's obviously, you know, that's, that seems to be kind of bad. And there's this judgment that somebody, that that thing, sorry, is wrong. So there's a, a state of affairs, a description of a state of affairs. You know, and then there's that kind of value judgment that goes in there. But what actually Eyre says is, well, let's actually look at that. Um, in fact, if you analyse what's, what's really happening with that statement, the moral term, you were wrong, doesn't actually add anything to the description of the state of affairs. It's not descriptive at all. It doesn't give us any factual information. It's not an assertion that can be, you know, that, that adds anything to the description. So we'll kind of, well, then what does it do? And Air says, well, look, it's, it's really just equivalent to kind of expressing your attitude that you have towards that state of affairs, kind of we're going to call it, air gets called an emotivist. And we get this, this theory of emotivism. You're, giving, you're emoting or expressing your emotion about that state of affairs. It's, and it's as if, he says, you've kind of just put a couple of big, thick exclamation marks and just expressed like, you stole that money in a tone of kind of outraged horror. That's actually what the moral term is doing. And so as such, it's not factually meaningful. It's not factually significant. All it's doing is just kind of serving to express rather than to describe. And so as such, what what then happens is he says, well, actually, if you think about what you're doing when you do that, not only are you trying to say, I'm really horrified. So you're not not saying, I am really horrified. You're you're just expressing your horror at the the money being stolen. And also, I guess, you're trying to make maybe the person who's stealing the money or maybe other people who are kind of watching on feel the kind of same way too. So it's got this kind of persuasiveness too. So you're not just saying this, you're not just showing how you feel. You're also trying to make other people feel the same way, sort of catch the same emotional wave as you are. And so there's this kind of like double thing going on. But the key thing he, he wants to emphasize, and this is why it's a kind of a non-cognitivist approach, he's really focusing in on the what's going on other than a simple description of your beliefs about the way the world is or some sort of description of what's actually going on. This isn't moral language, just doesn't function that way. It does something completely different. And that's what he's trying to, to draw out for us. And I think that, that's one of the great examples my students always seem to get it. And I think it's very, very clear that business of, well, maybe it's because I always shriek, you stole that money, a particular voice at them. <laughs> but they do see, I think, the it has a kind of initial plausibility to it. Um, but that's basically what happens when he turns that analysis uh, the verification principle onto ethical statements, and he finds them to express yeah, again using that term pseudo propositions. So yeah, so they are um, ethical propositions, or pseudo propositions, 
but it doesn't just dismiss them out of hand. That's something actually occasionally students can get a little bit sort of carried away with this and think that Eyre says that moral language is just complete rubbish and it's just nonsense and no one's got anything to do, blah, blah, blah. It's meaningless. Just forget about it, you know, move on. He's not saying that. He tries to, he wants to give an analysis of what's going on kind of under the surface, even though we, you know, because he's not going to be such a fool as to deny that there is kind of moral language and, you know, that we use this and morality has an important role in our lives and it does have meaning. What it lacks is kind of sense in that um, idea of connecting to a factual description of the way things are. Great. Yeah, that's really helpful. In fact, just a small point from me. So there are quite a few modern non-cognitivists who take their inspiration from people such as Eyre and some other and some other people as well. But they always emphasise that what they're trying to do is something quite positive to rescue moral language and moral activity and moral thought, not be as dismissive as, let's say, Mackey was, but to say there's actually something positive going on. It's just not quite, not quite what you thought it was. Ben, any thoughts from from you? Yeah, I I think that the I mean that was that was a brilliant. There's like tons of stuff there that, that kind of sprung to mind. I think one of the things that's interesting just for just for the A level students who are maybe thinking about other parts of the the course here, we discuss other members of the Vienna circle in other places. We discuss Hempel when we're talking about um, when we're talking about philosophy of mind. And I think what's an interesting point to raise about Hempel, which should be raised here, is that a lot of people do kind of have that sort of reaction of kind of well, what we're we supposed to do now just as we Mackie, well, what we're we supposed to do now you've told us this what we're we supposed to do and actually i think that what you can say about the vienna circle is that they were i don't know whether i don't know whether i want to call the word elitist or whatever it would be it's it's not meant for the general public necessarily this is philosophers trying to explain to other philosophers how they should be doing philosophy and so AJ Eyre is right in the fact that in his book he's popularising this. He's bring he is bringing it to the public. He's kind of saying, "Have a look at this. This is what we've been doing behind the scenes all this time." But with guys like Hempel, he's trying to say, "If you want to do psychology properly, psychologists, stop faffing around with all of this. You know, talk that can't be empirically verified. If you're going to do science properly, this is it." And a lot of students make the mistake, and I think this one of these things to raise is you're saying about going too far. There, Paul. It's it's about this idea of they immediately go, oh, Hempel says that the mind is this and that and the other, and that you can't verify the mind and blah, blah blah. And you say, no, in a scientific context, he's not saying get rid of all talk of the mind. He's saying in a scientific context, if you want to say meaningful things, then they have to be empirically verifiable. Otherwise, what are you saying? Doesn't mean that you can't use it in ordinary language in your day to day life for various other purposes. And Ayer's kind of doing the same here. He's, he's, you know, that this is a book of philosophy. And he's saying, he's not saying, stop using the word wrong. He's saying, you know, because it doesn't mean anything. He's saying, if you want to do some proper, like, philosophy about morals, stop treating morals as if they're this observable, verifiable, checkable, real thing. You're just barking up the wrong tree. We, we're kind of, like, completely going off um, off the rails with this. And I suppose that the that then just leads to kind of like, which is nice getting students to think about the way in which we use language and the way in which they use language. And I suppose that the part of that is that when people do raise, because that example is a really good one, the two things that students normally raise about this is one, well, couldn't it just be an analytic proposition, as I mentioned earlier? Like when you say you were wrong to steal that money, stealing just means the wrongful taking of something. So isn't that just analytic? Even if it is, 
it's vacuous. It's it's empty tautology. It it just says doing a wrong thing is wrong. What AJA wants you to do is cash that out. He wants to say, cool, wrongness is wrong is a tautology. Now, what does that have to do with the world? Can you actually explain to me what is empirically verifiable about wrongness? Because squares are empirically verifiable and bachelors are empirically verifiable. So we know what we're talking about. His big issue is that even if you make one to, you know, this kind of empirical side of things is even if you have stuff which is tautological, we shouldn't be spending ages and ages talking about those entities if all you can say is completely vacuous circular definition things that don't actually relate to the world. You're not making any progress there by coming up with self-contained, I suppose going back to people like Bradley, kind of the old Hegelians, where they have this self-contained terminology that feeds off each other, but doesn't actually say anything about the world. And the other side of it is when students say, but the word stealing does describe something, like a murder describes something. If I say somebody murdered some, somebody, it would be true if they killed somebody, but false if they didn't. There has to be an act of killing in order for there to be a murder. There has to be a taking of someone's property in order for there to be stealing. So there is a descriptive side to moral language. And I think, again, I don't, I don't know how much Air touches on this throughout his works and all those sorts of things. I certainly know that other emotivists have picked up on this and said, well, it's not that moral language can't be used to describe states of affairs. If I say someone is a thief, I've described an action that they've performed. But when I choose to say the word thief, I add something extra to the description, which is not empirically verifiable. I choose to describe them in an emotive way. And so, yeah, all right. Either it's Both of these responses are kind of like a, okay, even if I allowed that, what difference would it ultimately make to the overall moral value of your statement? It wouldn't. It would just be a cool, you've described something, but still you're just emoting when you describe it in the way that you do. And then on the other hand, this kind of like, you're right, if you do come up with some moral analytic statements, they're still vacuous and tautologous and don't mean anything. Be outside of that, this symbol means the same as this symbol. It's not really adding anything to moral discourse. And so, he's, you know, you can still be kind of end up in the same emotivist place, even if you kind of have these gotcha, aha, I found a an alternative version. Nah, he's he, to some extent, he does still have you. You haven't beaten him that way. You might be able to beat him other ways, but you haven't beaten him that way necessarily. Great. Thanks, both of you. Go on, Paul. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know if we're going to get onto this now, but actually onto sort of air anticipating criticisms and, and gotchas and all the rest of it. He famously uh, anticipates, well, he, he gives a, a kind of a criticism that, that Moore would have made of his work, which is that if air is right about moral language is having an expressive function, then this seems to make actual moral disagreement impossible. Uh, because if you uh, say you, you were wrong to steal that money, and then someone else was to say you were not wrong to steal that money, there wouldn't, be a con- there wouldn't actually be a contradiction there. And it seems like one person is saying one thing, one person is saying the opposite. And it seems like there is a genuine contradiction. The two people are in disagreement with each other. Two different points of view two very different kinds of statements about it. But Ayer says, actually, <laughs> this is, if you look at, take moral disagreement, it's actually a real strength of, of my of my theory. And you might this might well recommend 
an emotivist analysis of ethical language to you. Because in fact, if you do want to take a, a moral disagreement, and perhaps let's take some sort of moral disagreement that's in the news at the minute, like concerns around abortion with sort of Roe v. Wade sort of stuff going on in the US at the moment. Obviously, if you look at that, maybe you can have some sort of moral disagreement in which we kind of try and stick to the facts, as it were, in which case we might say, well, let's try and define or work out what the facts are about when life begins or whether or not a fetus can feel pain. or a... So there's a whole series of, of facts that might be relevant to people having a kind of a disagreement. But once those kinds of facts have all been established, once they're all on the table and kind of everyone agrees on, them, which in, in many cases they do, then actually, if there is still disagreement, then it can't be about the facts. And it's quite interesting to think if you do take the example of, you know, the US does seem to almost be descending into a kind of a civil war over a kind of an ethical disagreement, potentially. Maybe I'm slightly over, you're, you're warning us, Ben, rightly not to over <laughs> students or, or indeed as teachers. But there is that kind of sense, well, they're not going to come together. Whereas if there's disagreement around, I don't know, a matter of historical fact or scientific fact, we would expect as the kinds of, as the facts get established, there would be convergence, there would be agreement. But if you look at moral disagreement, it seems to have this peculiar characteristic of not necessarily being that responsive to facts. And once the facts have been all agreed on, we get still that divergence of opinion. So moral disagreement might well be, says Eyre, well, not might well be, it, this is really good reason to think that moral disagreement shows that actually I'm right on this. People aren't making factual claims. What they're doing instead is just saying how they feel. And people have different feelings because they've been brought up in different ways with different backgrounds and all the rest of it. So it's just worth picking out that, that issue of disagreement because it is very topical. And I do think it is a real strength of this position that actually the intractable nature of a lot of our, and the heat of a lot of our, of, of our moral disagreement could be well down to the fact that it isn't about the facts, it is about our feelings. Yeah, great. Yeah, good. That's really uh, important discussion to have then about um, agreement and disagreement, Paul. And in fact, just also for students, if you go on to study philosophy and indeed metaethics at university level, then we think a lot about disagreement. We think about AGA. Uh, you may come across uh, American kind of more or less contemporary of AGA called C.L. Stevenson, who's doing a kind of similar sort of thing, thinks a lot about disagreement. And up until the present day, agreements and disagreements are always something that non-cognivists are trying to wrestle with because then it gets really complicated when we start putting lots of logic on the whiteboard and working out whether whether non-cognivists can can cope with that stuff but let's leave that aside that's not part of the a-level uh curricula so for practical i'll just say one thing then as a way of just summarizing what we've got just so students have got it kind of hammered home and that will take us to just a kind of short discussion about another example of, of non-cognitivism. So the way I often explain this starting off is with strawberries, right? So because it's summertime, so I thought I'll, I'll just do strawberries. So my wife goes to the shops, she buys a punnet of strawberries, and I walk in through them and I see them, I go, mmm, strawberries. And she does it the same next day, and I say, oh, I like strawberries. And so they seem as if they're different utterances, Okay, we've been hearing a lot about this. You know, I like strawberries, mmm, strawberries. They seem as if they're different utterances. On the surface, what's often called the surface grammar, they're different. One is uh, just an expression of 
a kind of emotion, you might say generally, an expression of approval, an expression of liking. The other one is a statement, it seems on the surface, that I like strawberries. But as we know, in that second situation when I say, oh, I like strawberries, really what I'm doing is saying to my wife, mmm, strawberries. And perhaps going back to something Paul said earlier on, I'm trying to persuade her to give me some of the strawberries, right? Because there's a third sort of situation you can imagine where my my wife says to me, uh, Simon, do you like strawberries? And I say, I like strawberries. And perhaps Paul and Ben are asked to comment on my taste and they say, Simon likes strawberries. And perhaps my mom says, oh, yes, my son likes strawberries. Or perhaps my mom says, my son doesn't like strawberries. And in those kind of cases, those are utterances that can be true or false. They seem to be truth at. And sometimes people get it right. And sometimes they get it wrong. But in the in the first two cases, they seem to be working in the same sort of way. There's just different utterances. But you can imagine the situation where actually what's really going on is the same sort of thing. You're expressing a liking for strawberries. And at heart of it, that's really what's going on in the non-cognitive position, all the way through what we've been hearing about with, with air, in the way Paul and then, then ben, ben were taking us through, that really what's going on with, with moral claims is, you know, it was wrong to steal the money, is basically saying, you stole the money, double exclamation mark. And often you might hear emotivism or non-cognitivism in general call the kind of boo-hurrah theory of ethics, right? You're either hurrahing or booing various actions. And as, as Paul said, you might also be trend trying to persuade other people to share the same view. And that's at the heart of generally non-cognitivist positions. There's the surface grammar of this thing is wrong or they are cruel, but something else is going on. So we've talked about air and expressing likes, dislikes, strong approvals, weak disapprovals, whatever they are. But there's a different sort of non-cognitivist position. Anyone just want to explain quickly what's going on with hair? So not air, hair. And prescriptivism. Who wants to just explain that one? Okay, I'll give I'll give this one a go. Um, prescriptivism, then. Uh, so to prescribe to is to instruct, to give a series of instructions or commands to somebody. So if you go to a doctor, the doctor gives you a prescription, and a prescription isn't just a list of tablets. It is how many tablets you take at what time, when. And there can be other prescriptions. We want you to do this exercise. We want you to do this, that, and the other. So it's not just a list that we – nowadays we call a prescription a piece of paper that you take to the pharmacy. But a prescription is the doctor prescribes you a course of medication. That is, they instruct you in a course of medication. So if you imagine then mo- moral language being prescriptive, what Hare was trying to say is that the primary function of moral language is to – phrase that we can use here is commanding and commending that ultimately it commands people to do things that is it tells them or instructs them and actually kind of like he talks about it in what he calls the imperative mood so it's not necessarily that they are these kind of real solid objective commands it's there is a mood of the prescriptive there is a mood of the instructive about what we're saying it doesn't mean that they're kind of identical to commands in 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 some respects it's kind of like there is a, a kind of an underlying feel of the imperative to them. And then they also commend things. 
they congratulate, if you like. They sort of say, well done to that thing for whatever it is. So if we if we take an example, to stick with the strawberries example, this is a really useful one because like Hare does actually mention this himself. At the start of the book, where he's looking at this language and morals, where he's looking at this, he actually talks mostly for a big chunk of the book, not about moral goodness at all. He just says, look, there's this word good. And he's very much like G.E. Moore in this. He's like, there's this word good. We have loads of different uses for it. What do we mean when we say that things are good? And he says, well, let's just look at it in ordinary language. That's the big difference between him and A.J. Ayer. A.J. is coming from this verificationist sort of tradition. Hare is looking at it from what we call an ordinary language position. He wants to take kind of take language out of the science lab of the logical positivists kind of under the microscope, under the, the scalpel and plonk it back where it belongs in the way that ordinary people talk about things. Let's have a look at the way people actually use this stuff rather than this artificial way of understanding things. And he says, let's look at the way that we talk about things being good. And he says, well, goodness is used largely as a word of commendation. It's used as a word of saying, well done about something. Now, why do we know this? And he uses an argument which is really, really similar to G. Moore's open question argument. And he says, well, imagine then that people like the naturalists and, and the realists are right here, and that the word good is just a description of a set of properties, that the word good is just interchangeable with a set of properties. And the, the example that he gives is if I was to say that a strawberry is good, this is a good strawberry. Now, what did we mean by this is a good strawberry? He says, well, kind of like the realist about strawberries, the naturalist about strawberries will say, there's a, a set of qualities that a strawberry must have in order to be good. It must be, he says, sweet and juicy are the two things that he picks. You're going to hear these words a lot. They kind of lose meaning. They get more uncomfortable the more you hear them. But the, but this idea of a strawberry being sweet and juicy, and he says, so that's fine. This strawberry is good and this strawberry is sweet and juicy seem to be saying the same thing if a good strawberry is sweet and juicy. And he says, but let's think about it another way. Let's say if somebody says this strawberry is good because it's sweet and juicy. Now, what am I saying there? Well, according to the person who's a naturalist and a realist here, I've said the logical equivalent of this strawberry is sweet and juicy because it's sweet and juicy. Now, why would I bother saying that? Why would I bother just repeating myself? It's a tautology. I'm not saying anything new here. If I say it's good because it's sweet and juicy and goodness just means sweet and juicy, I'm just repeating myself. So his argument is that I he's, he's happy to say that there aren't moral natural properties and they can't be analyzed in this way so he's kind of hedging towards kind of a GE more kind of like goodness has to be understood in itself but he also he's also not a realist so he's kind of like so it's not some non-natural property either there's a whole bunch of arguments for that elsewhere that we won't go into but then what we end up with is this idea of what I'm saying is is when I say the strawberry is good because it's sweet and juicy what I'm what I'm really saying is is congratulations to this strawberry because it's sweet and juicy. And if I then say, and this ties back to the other point there about, well, does that mean that moral language can't be descriptive under the non-cognitivist kind of approach? He's not going to say that either. If you know that what I mean by good when I'm talking about strawberries is sweet and juicy, then when I describe a strawberry as good, then I'm telling you that it has those features. So I am describing it. But the fact that I chose to call it good rather than just sweet and juicy is because I also want to add my commendation to it. 
Now, that's the point. The word good wouldn't have a function in our language if it didn't add something to just the descriptive. It needs to do more than just describe. Otherwise, we wouldn't use it. Everything would just be descriptive. There's got to be this commendation. Now, the other side of this, I guess, is, well, what do we mean by moral good then? Because the other thing he points out is we don't just use the word good in a, in a non-moral context. That we have this special use of the word good, which we reserve for a particular kind of thing. And we know what that is. We say things like giving to charity is good. And just as with bad, this is a bad strawberry. Look at it. It's horrible. It's sour. It's all shriveled up, whatever. But then you've got this is uh, an action is bad. So, you know, that is a bad thing to do. Murder is a bad thing to do. What am I sort of pointing to here? In fact, he talks about it more to do with people, kind of like a person is bad or, you know, St. Francis of Assisi is good and, you know, whoever might be bad, Hitler is bad. If we're talking about that sort of thing, when we're talking about it in the moral sense, what's the difference? Am I just saying this person has certain features that are different to others? And he says, well, we are, but in a different way. The big difference is, is that there would be nothing wrong in a non-moral context, or rather we wouldn't call people out in a non-moral context, if they said that one thing was good and then something comes along with a different set of characteristics, and then we also call that thing good as well. So for the example I normally use this is, and I think he does talk about cars, what makes a good car? Now I could say what makes a good car, and I can give you the list of what I think makes a good car. I need something that can fit me and my shopping or me and my holiday luggage and my daughter and my partner in the car, as long as I can do that and and it doesn't cost me loads to run and all that sort of stuff, it's good. Now imagine that somebody comes up and they've got like a two-seater sports car that just guzzles petrol and I couldn't fit any of my stuff in it. And I go, oh, that's a good car. Somebody would go, no, Ben, no, 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 you can't say that because you just said the nice family car is a good car. No, they're both good cars for different reasons. I can move my judgments around. That I'm All I'm doing when I say good is I commend it, and I can commend it for different reasons. The difference with morality is that this judgment is universal, that when I say murder is wrong, I don't go, oh, murder is wrong, murder is bad, and then see somebody murdering somebody and go, well, that was a jolly good murder, wasn't it? That was, we all enjoyed that. It was, it, it doesn't add up that way. So even as complicated as our moral values can get, the point is that first of all, there's a universality to them. Whatever our moral value is, no matter how much we qualify it, we then apply that universally. So even if I say murder is wrong, except on a Tuesday, I would apply that to all Tuesdays. Like it would just be, it wouldn't be that if somebody murdered somebody on a Tuesday, I'd call them wrong on a Tuesday. It would still be universal. And therefore, they also have to be rational. There also has to be a rationality to them. It is possible to have contradictions within our moral judgments in this sense. Because if I say something like, murder is wrong, you ought to murder. I have contradicted myself. I I have held up a set of standards. And then I have, in the same sentence, uttered another set of standards which appear to contradict those previous ones, where that wouldn't be the case if I said, this family car is great. I would suggest buying the sports car. I haven't contradicted myself necessarily because I think that both are good prescriptions. But there's only one prescription that I'm trying to give with morality. I'm trying to give you a a fixed set of rules. And therefore, there is this sort of 
attempt to make them nice and logically consistent. Now, if we're talking about logical consistency and we're talking about sets of standards, this immediately kind of raises the question, well, how are we talking about non-cognitivism here? Like he's just told us there's a set of standards that I can have and I can be, I can contradict my own standards. I can be inconsistent. Now, in order to be inconsistent, it has to be that I can't believe two things at the same time and have them both be true. That's what it is to be inconsistent. That's what it is to have those contradictions. Why is it then that that isn't cognitivism? Well, it's because there are no facts upon which to base these standards. That's the whole point. There are no ultimate standards which fix moral values. So the point is, I am saying, and this is the whole thing about different layers of language, I am saying murder is wrong. And therefore, I am also saying but this murder is okay, and they're being contradictory on a hypothetical level. If this is true, then this can't be true at the same time. But as there are no facts that determine the wrongness of murder, there just are no moral facts that determine the wrongness, I'm being logically inconsistent, but that doesn't cash out in any real-world moral values. That, that doesn't mean that when I say murder is wrong, I'm saying something which is true or false. I am just prescribing or commending or commanding. I'm either commending something by saying this is good. And when I sort of commend things, I'm also giving the instruction, do this, be more like this as I do it. So the only thing we can check is internal consistency. We can never check truth or falsehood of what we're saying. Thanks, Ben. I think that was really helpful um, to get a sense of what's going on with with hair paul anything from from you to add i would just like that was utterly comprehensive i thought i'd like to uh, commend it and indeed when I say so, <laughs> i'd say it was good it was an excellent it was a fine explanation it made me want to uh, yeah, return to hair actually a, a quick uh, question then just to end this so because i asked you about moral error theory what do the two of you think about non-cognitivism then I, ha- I have moods. I think do we all have moods? Maybe it's just me where I think where I'm persuaded. And I think well, actually, this seems to be a correct analysis of what's going. On. Maybe in a sort of bleak and cynical mood, but I can't maintain it for that long. And I always like to think that actually, what, what I dislike about non-cognitivism is it seems to be it seems to reduce our kind of moral language, our moral activity, to kind of manipulation and to persuasion and to maybe the arts of rhetoric rather than the kind of the search for truth. If we want to go back to good old Plato and his his kind of split between what's what's good and what's bad when we learn how to reason well. And I just I, I, I like to feel that there is something, maybe I'm deluded or whatever, that there is there is some sort of reality to our moral discourse, our moral lives that isn't this kind of non-cognitive um attempt to persuade or or to emote or to express or whatever it happens to be i just don't i don't like the feel of it now maybe that's ironically enough because i'm just expressing my own opinions about a kind of an expressivist account of moral language i wonder even if there's a if there's an alternative i guess to being a cognitivist or being a non-cognitivist can we i know there's the the philosopher raymond gator who's quite an interesting another australian philosopher back to mackie but of, of more recent vintage he sort of says, well, maybe actually there's something unique about our kind of our moral activity, our moral lives that isn't trying to just describe the world in the way that a, a cognitivist account might might do or trying to reduce, you know, effectively to make statements 
which could be reducible to to naturalistic statements or scientific statements. And maybe it isn't this other kind of activity, which is around persuasion or commanding or prescribing all the rest of it. Maybe this just this practice of of morality that is this sort of autonomous with its own language, its own concepts, its own way of commending or say its own standards of evaluation that is somehow different, free from it all. Because I, I, to be honest, I, I, I'm not happy in either camp and I want to escape, I guess, into either um, my own sort of, I would say, grow up, you know, wake up and smell the coffee. <laughs> and so would Mackie. But I just wonder if there's an alternative because I'm not happy with either. I feel that as a non-cognitivist, you're just effectively doing something shallow or something wrong with, with your moral language. And I think that, that would be a shame to, to end up there. Ben, any last thoughts from you? I think, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I, I like I was saying last time with Error Theory, I think that I kind of have moments of this. Um, kind of like, yeah, I kind of get it. I see where you're coming from. But I think that the big thing, the big thing that I don't think, I think that Mackie isn't guilty of. And one of the reasons why I move in my more sort of like sceptical moments, I move back more towards Mackie, is I think there's a big problem with non-cognitivism. And I think a, a lot of, not all of by any means, but a lot of philosophy of language in general, that what starts as something great can kind of end up as something that's going down the wrong path with, if you look at like the early intuitionists, they were kind of like this idea of let's not worry about the ideals of what we want morality to be. Let's look, let's look at what's actually going on when somebody has a moral, makes a moral judgment. What's going on in a person's mind? when they have a, a moral judgment. And you can kind of see this with the, the attempts at language here. What is actually going on when a person says, you know, speaks their moral judgment or writes it down? And there's something really beautiful about that. Let's, let's strip away all the abstract. Let's strip away all the years and years of philosophical discussion. Let's just get back to basics. What's really happening? And I think the problem that happens with non-cognitivism is it starts off in that sort of what's really happening. And the intuitionists kind of in their side, the cognitivist side, managed to do quite well in sort of saying, well, look, none of us actually do these things like, oh, I'm making a utilitarian calculation. It's always just, I just feel that this is wrong. I just see that this is wrong. And unfortunately, what guys like Eyre and, and Hare are doing is they're basically going, you know, when you speak, you know, when you know what you think you're doing when you're speaking, you're not doing that. You don't know what you're doing when you're speaking. And there's this feeling that we kind of go, I do know what I'm doing when I'm speaking. I'm the one speaking. I know what I intend to do when I speak. I might be wrong, but you can't tell me that I'm emoting because I can say that things are wrong all the time and I don't feel anything. I just I just say, yeah, that's wrong. In fact, I can say things that I, again, with like the prescription stuff, I can say um, that I know stuff is is wrong and, you know, but I prefer that people did it. You know, I could do, I can do that. I'm not doing with my language what they think they are, according to me. So it's very hard for me to be convinced that I'm I'm not using my language in the way that I think I do. Whereas Mackie seems to capture more what I think. I think I am probably, if anything, trying to make claims about the world that I'm just wrong about because I know I do that already. It's very rare that I describe, unless I'm being really Freudian, it becomes very kind of rare for me to describe the world and secretly be telling someone what I want them to do. It, it doesn't really seem to stack up. And for me, I think that the reason why I kind of go back towards the Mackie thing, again, I know to, to kind of end on a, a stupid example, because I like bringing him up, 
if either of you remember the uh, the late great comic shop in Birmingham, Nostalgia and Comics on Smallbrook Queensway. My best mate when I was at school worked there. He worked there for a number of years when he was like the he worked there for ages, but this is kind of like when I was about 16, 15, 16 or whatever. And I'd go and meet him there. And I would spend all day kind of hanging around the shop and kind of waiting for him to finish so that we could go go out. And I would sit listening to grown men arguing over <laughs> could the Millennium Falcon outrun like Darth Vader's custom TIE fighter? And they'd be going, no, because it's got a twin ion engine. It's got a twin ion engine. Of course it can outrun the, t- the Millennium Falcon. No, no, the Millennium Falcon did the castle run in however many parsecs and stuff like that. And the point was, the whole time I'm listening to this, I'm just going, yeah, but neither of you are right, though. There are no facts here. So whatever we say is just false because there there is no fact you could present me with that shows that one of those ships is faster than the other. And even if you go, yeah, but one of them has got a this engine and one of them has got a that engine, the fact that those engines don't exist and aren't real and aren't based on real physics means that it's automatically false. And I suppose that that, to me, would be the equivalent of me then going up to them and going, now, there are no facts about the Millennium Falcon, which are actually true, you know. So what I think you're doing is you're expressing happiness about the Millennium Falcon and you're commending the Millennium Falcon and you're secretly trying to tell this guy that if he ever does buy a spaceship, he shouldn't buy Darth Vader's TIE Fighter. No, they're just talking rubbish. That's that's all that's going on. They're just talking rubbish. And it's okay that we sometimes talk rubbish, that we get things wrong. So I actually think that that actually we should be more serious, that like people actually know what they're doing when they speak. They know what they're trying to do. And therefore, we don't need somebody telling them what they're actually doing. I think that there's a – and the fact that they're so reductive as well, the fact that it is just – oh, you're either emoting or you're commanding and commending or you're describing or you're this or you're that. How about moral languages used to do all of those things like we do with all of our language anyway? It just seems a little sort of they're doing too much here. We've said about students pushing it too much. I think they're trying to do too much with what they've discovered, I think. Great. Thanks very much, Ben. And thanks also, Paul. Um, I have to say, recording this podcast, I've really enjoyed listening to both of you and, and your takes on all this anti-realism stuff. Really enjoyed it. But we better draw things to a close, I think. So, um, Paul, thanks very much for joining us again. Thank you. Pleasure to be here as ever. Uh, and Ben, thanks to you as well. Absolutely same. And thank you to both of you and uh, happy to come back whenever. Great. And thanks to you for listening to this episode of Philosophy Get Schooled. And all being well, you'll listen to some of our other episodes also. Mm-hmm.